Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with Will Gross, who recently became the drummer for the Atlanta-based tribute band Electric Avenue. The band bills itself as the 80s MTV experience and is hard at work playing theaters, clubs, and private events all over the country. Will also plays with a variety of other blues, rock, and jazz projects around Atlanta, including the Ike Stubblefield Trio with Stubblefield on organ and Grant Green Jr. on guitar. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also follow us on social media and share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer to get reposted. Lastly, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful to us. So Will and I covered quite a bit of ground here, not just about his current gig with Electric Avenue, but also our respective journeys with Traditional Grip, uh, the very welcoming experience we both had when we moved to Atlanta, and ways to keep your body in good working order. So I hope you enjoy this talk with Will Growth. So were you were you playing with Electric Avenue this weekend? I was. We had a, a corporate thing at a golf club in Smoke Rise. So we were outside on the golf course. That was the, uh-huh. like, which was fine. Yeah. The wind was blowing, and we had a yeah. So it was just it's. It's. I've had allergies. I grew up in Minnesota, and I've had allergies my whole life. Yeah, me too. Um, and then I'm fine. Like when it's all over the cars. Right. It's April. I'm like, oh, maybe this is the year. And then May, <laughs> you know, like you're just like, it's not gonna happen. I'll be fine. Yeah. And then May hits. It's like, all right, whatever's, because it looks like summer. I mean, things mm-hmm. aren't really blooming. Mm-hmm. Honeysuckles are blooming, but. Something's out there is going bananas. Right, right. So you were doing a corporate gig this weekend. Yeah. It it seems like Electric Avenue kind of splits between like some corporate private stuff and some theater show stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And to yeah, the uh, the next night we were at the Roxy at SunTrust Park playing for this uh, Atlanta Braves girls' night out thing that they put <laughs> together. Right. So there's and that's a beautiful room. I'm sure you've you've. Seen I haven't that. been in there yet. I've, I've been to the stadium, but I haven't been in the Roxy yet. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's uh, I'm not sure capacity. It's it's big, bigger than like Variety Playhouse. Wow. And uh, big chandeliers in there. But yeah, so we've done that twice now. Cool. And uh, yeah, like a thousand thousand lovely ladies come and hear a bunch of '80s music. But you're right. It's it's a beautiful thing to go between. Playing the corporate events and doing that, and then playing a room like that or Iron City in yeah. Birmingham, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get that get that vibe where you can get get some more feedback, get some energy returned, right? Just like <laughs> laying it out to whoever. But man, I'm you know I'm thankful for whoever wants to hire us. Right. It's and that that SunTrust Park uh, complex out there is is what on earth nuts. Yeah. And uh, like musicians are working out there, like yeah. they're hiring like drum lines and all kinds of shit to play for the games. And then mm-hmm. there's the Roxy thing. There's the battery, um, that outdoor stage, like kind of right in there. Yeah, yeah. Area. And there's like condos. And the, every time I see one of those places, it, it's what Marlon Patton calls uh, uh, "eat." What is it? Work, live, play, eat, shit, die. Yeah, right. <laughs> you just don't even leave. Just, no, for real, they're springing up everywhere. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. The way it is. Um, 
And just like a, you're you're traveling your ass off with this band too, right? You were in. It's good. We uh, we did a kind of a, a rough weekend that was lovely. We played Winter Park. A rough weekend that was lovely. Yeah, well, that's, that's all. That's all I can describe. There's definitely a lack of sleep there. Mm. Um, and we uh, we got asked to play the end of the ski season at Winter Park. Wow. And it was cool. And of course, when we got there, they're like, "Well, there's enough snow. We're gonna extend it another week." So it was really. I thought it was good because it's like the end of the season is May 6th or whenever it was. It was this weekend. And um, it was beautiful. It was snowing while we were playing. And like, and I grew up doing all that. Like right. there was a little ski hill in my hometown. There's nothing like Colorado, but we did all that all mm-hmm. through high school. And like, so I'm looking out there and the eighties are back, man. Every like for neon, real. Yeah. Like it's crazy. So we're looking at all these people and they're digging it. Uh-huh. You know, if, if, unless you were on the moon, those songs are—you you just whether you like them or not, right? They're in your DNA, right? You know, you know who Tears for Fears mm-hmm. is, and you know it's just all that. So it was—it was really great to see that. Check it out, and and just to kind of look up at like a huge ski hill while you're playing. We were outside, of course, right, doing right. That. And then the uh, the next day we played the uh, Burns Wine Fest in Tampa. Which the band has done, yeah. So it was like we just went to the in Denver, went to the airport at night, and just we took an all night flight, did a red eye because we had to play this VIP set for thirty minutes from like eleven to eleven thirty in the morning. So it was it was a little much, yeah. And I again take it when it comes. I will take it. Yeah, I will always take it. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was fun. These guys are totally a great time. Nobody got at each other. Right. If there was ever a weekend to like lose your shit, that would have been the one. For real. So yeah, that was good. That was fun. How, how long has that band been around? And and did you start in it? I did not. Okay, I did not. Uh, Ganesh was in that band. Okay, so and, I, yeah, I interviewed uh, him a couple months right. ago. And, yeah, yeah, wonderful guy. Um, and I think that was like a um, kind of like a side project. I believe a lot of those guys were in the Yacht Rock Schooner band. Right, and then they wanted more work because uh, I think some people were having children and like everything you can possibly put on the plate. Yes. So they started this band and then now it is its own entity. Right. And uh, so no, I did not start the band. I've been in it about a year and a half and uh, it was one of those things. I knew Jordan Shallop who was playing sax at the time uh-huh. and Gary Paolo was also part of that. And I had met Tom Young who was playing bass. We did some small gig up in Roswell. Uh, at a bar, and he had mentioned that they were looking for somebody, and uh, I was like, "Man, just just let me know." Right, you know, it's all good. So I went and auditioned, and it was fun. Did three tunes, and um, they're like, "Man, this is it." And I'm like, "All right, well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that." <laughs> yeah. And then nothing. Huh. Like five weeks, I think I didn't hear anything. Which is, man, I get it. It's just it's the way it is. Right. I didn't think much of it, but I knew they were playing at Smith's Old Bar. That would have been like October of last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was coming back that day from doing a gig in Nashville the the, the night before at a city winery with uh-huh. this band, the Last Waltz Ensemble, which is oh yeah, a yeah. beautiful thing, right? Playing all that Bob Dylan and, and the band music, yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to the to the Electric Avenue show at Smith's Old Bar just to be like, hey, I was that guy who you said <laughs> got the gig, yeah. And I'm driving back. We were driving back that next afternoon on Friday and Kevin calls me, Kevin Spencer, and he says, what are you doing tonight? And I'm like, funny you ask, I was going to come see y'all. Uh-huh. And he goes, you should bring your drums because <laughs> our drummer can't, can't make it. He's, Whoa. From, he's from Macon and he called today. He'd been working with him uh-huh. and uh, he's like, 
he called us today and said there's no way man and i'm like excuse me because i i saw their playlist online it's extensive yeah and i kind of went cold on the whole thing i had shedded the three songs for the audition right other than that i was like man what and um he goes yeah bring your ears because we play everything to tracks yeah and uh I was like, okay. Just threw you in it at Smith's old bar. There we go. Well, if you're going to be thrown into somewhere, I guess Smith's is okay. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was on high alert, and uh, I was, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty nervous. But you know, you just play strong and plow through it, and I guess everything worked out. Right, right. So the, um, I want to take this piece by piece. Sure. Talk about the audition process because it, you know. We've we've talked about auditions on the on the podcast before. Some of them are like super formal, kind of high pressure situations. Sure. Some of them are more of a hang, just mm-hmm. feel each other out. And with some bands, there is no audition. Like they okay. hire you for a gig, and if they like you, they keep calling you. That's that's or, right. You know. So what was what was that audition like? It was. Uh, I mean, it was a call, but it was cool. They scheduled it. They had a rehearsal space where they had everything set up, um, <clears throat> and they're like, we're we're going to audition on a Tuesday, whatever, a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is your time. Uh-huh. You know, whatever hour it was, like, I think it was like 10 to 11 uh-huh. that night. So it was kind of cool in a way because I just showed up and they're like, we have everything for you. Um, you're good to go. And so you're not like sitting in a room with like 17 other drummers right. eyeballing each other or yeah. whatever. I mean, it's yeah. cool because it's not, I mean, you meet people and it's, I mean, there's competition. That's That's the livelihood we chose, but there's brotherhood mm-hmm. and, a, and a community sisterhood and all that. Um, so I just showed up and, uh, I, uh, one of the drummers was leaving and did I you know knew, him? I knew the guy. Yeah. His name was David Anthony. Mm-hmm. He's a killer player, mm-hmm. great uh, session player guy in town. has been around for a long time. And so we shook hands and said hello and all that. And then we just went in there and they didn't say much, you know, they kind of just electric Avenue just kind of got down to business. They were cool though. Right. Were, everybody was chill and they're like, just play. Mm-hmm. But here's the click, and it was <laughs> it was cool. We did two two tunes with tracks, and then one without. So that was kind of fun. And the one without, they're like, we need to play that a little faster. So it's like, oh, that's it's easy to go that direction. Sure, <laughs> I can I can speed up any day. So it was cool. It was it was chill, and, uh, and then they kind of talked about what they were what they wanted to do and what it was about, and where it was headed, uh-huh. and um, and then they didn't call me for. A month and a half. Right. So that's that's the next thing I want to get to is like, I I think especially in my younger years, yeah. like if I had this great audition and they were like, you're the guy and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Like if, you know, if two weeks went by, never mind five, I would be freaking out and would probably be that guy who was like emailing or calling or being right. like, what are we doing? Yeah. Um, so how were you able to resist? <laughs> I, think, I think after two and a half, three weeks, I think I reached out to Kevin. Okay. And I just said, man, just, you know, to reiterate, um, I'm interested, keep me in touch. And then, you know, Kevin is like one of the most positive human beings I think I've ever met. He is. Yeah. And he fired me off something that, yeah, all is well. We're just trying to work through some stuff. But... You know, we've we've heard that too, right? You know, with 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 gigs or whatever, right? Um, right. So I was like, okay, and then you just roll, yeah. Um, but uh, go about I, your life and and sure, because that's that's what it is, yeah. yeah. But it was I was really this was one of the auditions I had that I had enough time to really prepare. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of, I mean, I just turned forty, 
and like I knew like this one, you, you know, I think you should really, I always tried, but like some of them, I just didn't have the, the knowledge to like know how to learn the songs properly. Cause this is, there's no charts. Right. This is pop music. Right. But these guys, we play this stuff as specifically as humanly possible. Yeah. So you have to take notes and I'm not going to write out like a measure by measure chart mm -hmm. for one of these songs. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to get lost in it. I don't want to just, I want to, you know, stay present and do mm -hmm. the whole thing. Um, so yeah, in the past, I just didn't have, have those skills that I've acquired since mm -hmm. to like really do that effectively and to know I'm doing it effectively. Right. You know, before, right. cause I, I, I auditioned for the Zach Brown band uh -huh. in like 2007 maybe. Uh -huh. And I think I got a call Friday night that said, we're holding auditions, uh, on Sunday. <laughs> I'm I kid you not. Mm -hmm. And I had listened, you know, I think, um, the foundation record had just come out. So I listened to it because I was actually roommates with Coy Bowles at the time, who's in the band, mm -hmm. has been forever, great human being. And I just, I mean, that was, that was like, there's guys came down from, from Nashville and it was a really big deal. Yeah. And I, I did okay. <laughs> right. You know, but I didn't, just, you didn't, I shedded the stuff as much as I could. Right. But they I, gave you a few songs. They and, did. They yeah, gave yeah. me a few songs, but like now I know how to take notes better mm -hmm. so that even if you're looking at something you know, you, you've got some structure and it's not just, you know, play the song, play the song, play the song, play the song and go dead on memory mm -hmm. when you're doing the audition. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did there. And I think it was, it was cool. Right. But, um, you know, yeah, there's a, you know, we talk all the time about, about being able to do shit quickly, whether it's in the studio or in oh, an man. audition, like being able to just deliver yeah. on a dime. But there's also a skill and a method to like, if you have some time to prepare, yeah. How do you use that time? That's right. Um, and uh, like you said, you can, you know, there are effective ways and ineffective ways to, you know, overwork it, overthink it. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. So what were the three songs that they, that they had you audition on? It was, uh, rule the world. Everybody wants to rule the world. Uh, -huh. uh tears for fears. It was, um, Howard Jones tune, um, keyboard player I'm trying to think that name of that song. I can't even think of it. We play it all the time, um, <laughs> right? That's that's my brain. No, it's the, I, I'm the and same way. Like in most bands I play with, there are certain songs on the set. They're always on the set right. list, and I can never remember the name of the goddamn yeah, song. That's 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 me right yeah. now. <laughs> look up Power Jones. It's his most famous tune. Right. Um, so that was it. Was a great song, and then uh, Footloose huh. was the last one. Yeah. And there's some sections to that, and uh, and that tune is like. At about 87 BPM, but you know, it's kind of a double, double time yeah. rock thing, which that's really easy to push. Yeah. But I was like, man, I know these guys, they're going to want it at 87. <laughs> and so I practiced it at that and I'm like, I'm ready. And then I start playing and they're like, nah, it's a little slow. <laughs> I was like, all right, man. Yeah. So let's do it. So, uh, no, it went well. It was fun. And there's such a great hang, great players. Um, yeah, it was just the whole thing. Kinda and and Gary Paolo, a great friend of mine in town, was on sax, and we were in a band together for about three three and a half years, and um, he was there, so it was it was just great, right. it was super cool, right. and um, yeah, we've been rolling ever since. And um, so you're playing you're playing with tracks mm -hmm. and a click, yeah. Um, something I've been thinking about lately is how 
in you know cover bands or wedding bands or tributes or whatever um it's it's really common i think too common for bands to play songs cover songs yeah. faster than the original absolutely so do you do you guys set the click a little faster do you play stuff at the original tempo I would say 90% of it is at the original tempo. Good. And like, yeah. And you think about a song like Mary Jane's Last Dance. Right. Everybody plays that fast. Yeah. And it's, you know, and that's, I can talk about Tom Petty for a long time because that was the whole another thing that I kind of realized later in life about playing rock grooves right around 100 BPM. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm not saying for everybody, just for me, to hold it there, like a song like Refugee. The, yep. the lyrics. Mm-hmm. If you're playing that song too fast, there's no way you can sing that song. Right. <laughs> and this is this is my point about playing shit too fast. Like yeah. it's it's making me probably angrier than it should uh-huh. lately. Because you know I, I think people like band leaders or whoever um, you know their their rationale. If if they're okay, first of all, if they're even aware yep. that they're playing shit faster than normal. Right which is not always the case, their rationale is like, you know, people are dancing, people are partying, we want it to be like higher energy, we want it to have that edge on it. Right. And I get that, but but then I realized like these people would still be dancing and partying if the original recording was playing through the PA. Tempo does not equal energy. Right. No. Right. No. This shit was created and recorded That's right. at that tempo for a reason. Yeah. And one of the big reasons is, like you said, the lyrics. Yes. Um, so I've been in a bunch of situations where, like, we've been ahead of the tempo, mm-hmm. faster than normal, and it gets to a certain point in the song, and the singer just, like, spits through stuff, and it doesn't sound good. It sounds frantic. It sounds rushed. Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you guys are, are for the most part, sticking to the, the original tempos. We are, and tempos. We'll, we'll, we'll have, like, little, little meetings about, you know, if a song is not quite as effective... Uh-huh. And we'll bump it. But if we bump it, you're talking like two to three BPM. Right. Just enough to make it. We were talking about like a George Michael tune. And because you watch and it's like there's this with this band, there's the recognition of the of the music. You see it in the crowd. And you're like, oh, yeah. And then a lot of these songs, because it's a different era. Some of them are long. Right. I mean, and there's like breakdown sections because there was still like more dance clubs, I think, around. It's mm-hmm. like a six and a half minute song is no big deal. Right. And we're different we're different now. Even people that grew up listening to that and still understand what an attention span is, you know, you gotta sometimes you gotta bump it up a little. Uh-huh. But it's still the the, the song. You're right. Like, and it's minute. And again, that's a interesting concept. Like you can bump a tune up three BPM and it changes everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, right. not 10. Right, without without putting the singer in trouble. That's right. You know, diction-wise or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, I don't I don't want to come off like I'm the authority on, on original tempos because part of the reason I realize this is as, as I'm learning more and more songs, um, you know, I'll, I'll think... I'll think of a song, I'll see a song on a set list that I have to learn sure. and I'll think of the groove and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that. And I'll, I'll go to practice it and chart it out and I'm like, whoa, that's about... That's way slower than I thought. <laughs> exactly. No, it's, you know? it's incredible. And so, like, we're, like we're saying, some tunes need to be where they were. Mm-hmm. I've, been, I've been recently re-listening to, what is it, the 95 record Steely Dan, Live in America. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. Is it Dennis Chambers on that, I believe? It's, I think it's half Chambers and half Erskine. Okay. Um, I mean, like, Babylon Sisters? Yeah. 
I mean, just stop. <laughs> I don't get goosebumps just right. thinking about it. Like, yeah, the yeah. pocket on that mm-hmm. is almost impossible. Yeah. And, and that was before ears. Like, they were. That's what I'm wondering. Like, is that just like. You're just such a badass. You just. Yes. I mean, like. The answer is yes. I saw Steve Ferroni live one time when I lived in LA. I saw him at the Cafe Cordial. Okay. Um, And uh, the same thing with Herman Matthews. Uh, I saw both those guys there. And, like, there was no ears, no click. Oh, my God. They were just on the back of everything and. You know, <laughs> miraculous. Yeah, just just in that. That's so. I was, t- I was talking to a friend of mine about that very thing, and he, you know, urban legend or not, right? Talks about there's a story about one of the because Steely Dan always and to this day has like the best drummers on earth, right? Right. It's kind of the deal. Is this the Erskine story about Hey Nineteen? I it's the story I heard. And he didn't even know the tune about somebody bumped it a little. Yeah. Is that yeah? Yeah, Erskine, it a little. Erskine was in, yeah. He, Erskine okay. was in town like a few months ago, and he did the clinic. Yeah, that's right. Clinic at Emory that I went to, and I don't. Somebody asked him about that, or they asked him another question, and he used that story as an example of okay. it. And um, he said, yeah, it was it was Hey Nineteen, and they were starting it off. They had been starting it off at one eighteen. Okay. And uh, and you know he just got it in his head one night, like you said, just put a just, little edge just on a it, little, just just right? a little bit. So like he had his metronome, you know, by his by his rig, and one night he started it off at one nineteen. This is what he said. Oh my! This God. is what he said. Okay. okay. Um, and he, you know, so they played through. They played through Hey Nineteen, and they yep. came off stage, and and Fagan came up to him and was like. Hey, nineteen seemed like a little. It was. It felt a little bit fast. Did you do something different? And and Erskine fessed up. He was yeah. like, "Yeah, I thought like it thought it might feel better with just a little bit of an edge on it." So I so I did one nineteen. Right. And Fagan was like, "Yeah, don't do that." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is. That, I mean, those are some studio magic, right? Guys, right? I mean, compositionally, I mean, it's this is the art, and this is how it's done, right? So, the, to me, that that story is amazing in two ways. One, Fagan perceived uh, it, right? Right. But two, Erskine, like no ears, no click, started it off one nineteen one night and just held one nineteen for the whole song. To me, <laughs> I, yeah, and 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 I have yet to um, dive into it. Which I'm excited to to try, but some of the stuff that like Benny Greb is talking about right mm-hmm. now, if I'm saying and saying his name correctly, yeah. and he's talking about internalizing the click, mm-hmm. and and he talks about like this. Uh, what did he say it was the um, the football clave? I'm trying to think. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. And he's got a great video on drumming where he talks about that, and it's not just he's like being able to literally say this. While you're playing, and he's using the uh, the syllable like chick, uh-huh. chit, or something, and he's you know so saying, you're literally saying this and playing a groove, versus listening to the click, because he talks about the click is real consistent a lot of times on like quarter notes, you can play behind it or in front of it, but he's like then you can lean on it, you start mm-hmm. to rely on the click, mm-hmm. which um anyway just that whole notion of internalizing tempo and then abandoning right a metronome right so it's you and it's real like you're talking about these masters that we we go back and study and listen to why they are so great steve Maloney's right. a perfect example what a monster player <laughs> unbelievable i just i interviewed uh daphne sprieto a few days ago um, and he talked about uh, this whole concept called rhythmic synchronicity. Okay. And part of it is 
like he he talked about how um, as musicians we we start with a pulse mm-hmm. and then we put rhythms over the pulse. Right. Like we superimpose whatever we have to play over the pulse. But he's he's talking about approaching it from the other way. Like you start with your rhythmic content, you start with your rhythmic interpretation, mm-hmm. and and let the pulse be established out of that. Um, that makes way more sense, does it not? Right. I mean, if you can do that and still right, and it, like <laughs> Daphne's Daphne's is just on another level oh, with, yes. with with all that kind of shit. But I had never thought about that. Like most people, like. You know, lay people, people who aren't musicians, are capable of pretty complex rhythms, like whether they're singing or clapping along or something. Like they have no knowledge of notation, any of that. Yeah, they're not like asking, "Could you could you count it off for me?" Right. You know, they'll just do something. Right. Like you can you can play something for someone and say like, "Repeat that rhythm" or "Repeat that lyric," Uh and a lot of them will be able to do it. You can play the same thing and say, "Where's the pulse?" Right. And they have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Right. So right. approaching the pulse through the rhythm is, is something that he's talking about that I'm like, I, I kind of want to explore. Like, That's the beauty of everything we're talking about, your whole podcast, everything, drumming, music. There is no glass ceiling on this, right. on this adventure. Right. And there's no right way to do most things. Exactly. Because think, I mean, we listen to like, well... The music we're talking about today with Electric Avenue and that is Western pop rock so far. That's right. what we've talked about. Right. I mean, that completely excludes like the other side of the planet. Yeah. And like, you know, rhythms that are not written down, right. that are vocally transcended. And, and, you know, so yeah, it's, there is no right or wrong way to do this. Yeah. It's just what's effective for what you're trying to do. Yeah. And it's, I, uh, Bobby Watson, when I was in grad school, said there's, there's no such thing as cheating. In music. I love it. Like, if you figure out a way to do something and yeah. get something right and make it sound good, it, like, it doesn't matter how you did it. There's no such thing as cheating. There you go. <laughs> if, it's, yeah, if it sounds good, you're in. Electric Avenue is, is subtitled The 80s MTV Experience. Indeed. Um, so, what about the drumming surprised you? What about it challenged you? Um... I would say, like, I haven't played along with too many of these songs before. Mm-hmm. Like, you know them, but that doesn't mean you can execute them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to, you know, some of, some of the music we did, we did a, like a Tears for Fears tribute show a while back. And some of that material had some real depth to it mm-hmm. and real finesse. And I'm not saying the other stuff doesn't because it's just, it's song by song. But it's a lot of pocket stuff but it's right dead center because think about when they started using a lot of drum machines in the, in that time you know everything is right right in the middle mm-hmm. which you know I, I i kind of vacillate between you know studying jazz and it's where you put the pulse back to the pulse where you put the pulse depends on the genre you're playing i mean some music should lean ahead if you're playing some latin thing that's burning yeah. you should be on top i think yeah um and if you're playing something a little more soulful, and I had been listening to a ton of like Tedeschi Trucks band, which yeah. I'm a huge fan. Me too. And and it's so tasty, and it's kind of back, and it's just comfortable, and it's oh my, I can't say enough yeah. about that band. 
I incidentally, I I saw them just brief side note. I sure. saw them at the Fox Theater like six months ago, um, and I'm I'm buddies with uh, Tim LaFave, the bassist. Oh sure. And at the time, Carrie Frank, who's another buddy of mine, was subbing on organ for right. Kofi. So I went to see them. I saw Soundcheck, and Derek. Like I I think Derek has the best time in that band. Nice. It's unbelievable. He he would count off a tune and like. I, I saw him count off this one tune, and it was like right in the middle, like you said. It was kind of a hundred BPM, uh-huh. middle of the road groove. Oh, yeah. And before he counted it off, or he didn't count it off, he starts the tune okay. just by himself. But before he started playing, I saw his body just like kind of do two pulses, uh-huh. and in those two pulses was just like all the time and all the groove in the world. He just went like I because his back his back was to me, okay. and I just saw his kind of shoulders and his back go. And I was like, "Oh shit, it's there already." <laughs> it's it's a beautiful thing. It's it's amazing, and I think like non drummers a lot of times don't get credit for how good their time is and how deep their pocket is. Right. Like guitarists like Derek, or you know, singers, a bunch of the singers that are in the Electric Avenue set list. Yeah. You know? Anyway, I, I I digress. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So there was a moment where I had been working with this group for I don't know six months or something. Maybe it wasn't that long. Um, and uh, Eric Frampton plays keys. Uh, he started the band, and he's he's periodically comes back and plays with us because he's a, uh, he's on the road with Lionel Richie a lot of the year. Anyway, he looked at me one night and he goes, "Man, the minute you stop being cool and putting everything behind the beat, the band sounds great." And <laughs> I was like, "Because <laughs> I mean, I think I think a lot of times as drummers we strive." For that pocket, that, right? You know, behind the pulse, just a little bit, right? And he goes, "Man, you got to play this stuff dead center." Yep. He goes, "It's pop music," and he goes, "The minute you stop being cool, you sound great." It's, man, <laughs> it's like it it's like Michael Carvin said, uh, "Don't don't try to be too hip because right. two hips make an ass." Oh, there it is. There it is. I thought it was perfect, but I mean, I was I was surprised by some of the music that we play. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll we'll take the tune "Rio," for example, by Duran Duran. Uh-huh. That tune, and maybe it's just the way I'm trying to play it. Um, that tune is jamming. I mean, it's it's up tempo. I'm playing sixteenths on the hat the whole time. Yeah, um, both hands. I'm not going to take credit for that. There's no way. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's just up, and there's some there's just some sections to it. It's high energy, and that's the thing that I would say about this whole group and our shows. It's like right out of the gates. It's high energy. For 90 minutes or two hours or however long we're playing mm-hmm. versus some different maybe uh, corporate bands I've been in that, you know, you would start, say you're doing a wedding and you start with like a cocktail set and you're doing the swing thing and then the crooner thing and then you're you're building. So the last set, maybe you do four sets, um, the last set is crushing. Right. Or two, you know, set and a half mm-hmm. where this is just like, man, you better warm up. <laughs> and, and I love it. And, yeah. um, and, and it's a lot of... Um, this past weekend, I kind of changed my snare head, and I realized halfway through the first set that I didn't tighten it quite where I wanted it. And I'm like, my left hand started like dogging and like hurting, and mm-hmm. I'm going, "Oh, because I'm not getting anything back." I'm just playing. I'm just pounding all these back right. without any <laughs> rebound. So, um, but that's that's the other thing is it's like we don't play any Michael Jackson, but like if you listen to you know uh, Thriller and Bad, there's some of those. Like, Leave Me Alone, I think, is the last track on Bad. Uh-huh. And it has a crazy video, and the snare drum drives that entire song. 
Yeah. Just two and four. Mm-hmm. You can, I mean, anyway, that's what I feel a lot of this music is it has to have. Mm-hmm. It's just because it's pop. Right. It's jamming. Right. But uh, it's, it's been, not it's not just about the right tempo and the right groove. It's the proper energy and absolutely the high spirit of it all. And then there's just such a variety like the like the cars. Uh-huh. You might think that song you might think that song is great. And it's just like the nuances of like what makes a really good song, having listened to it, playing it, playing it and listening to it, and then, you know, doing it again is, those are the things that you just kind of wake up to. When you're sitting in the seat, as you well know, playing a song, it's a whole different experience. Mm-hmm. And it's great to to have heard these songs so many times and now dissect them to see what fills worked, what things because it's somebody else. It's yeah. not my fills. Right. It's theirs. Right. And it's like, man, that's bad. Uh-huh. Like, it's simple. Mm-hmm. It's great. We just started doing Men at Works Down Under. Uh-huh. Which, good, I mean, Colin Hay, good Lord. Yeah. If you've ever listened to him in the last like couple years sing Overkill, good Lord. He can crush that mm-hmm. tune. It's just it's through the stratosphere. But um, Down Under has a whole like kind of bridge section, which is nothing but drum fills. And they all got to be there. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's cool to like go, oh, that's why this works. Right. And um, anyway, but like to oh. take a tune like Simple Minds, uh, what's the name? Hello. It's a tune in the Breakfast Club. Oh, right. Um, Hello. I, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, don't you forget about me. Right. Okay. How many times have I heard that tune? But to, um, I remember growing up and watching the universal world come on the screen and universal comes flying around. And when it's the film, they start that song with the drum groove. Uh The band doesn't come in. It's just about a couple measures of a backbeat. And I was like, what on earth is happening? So that song in particular resonated with me and I tried to play it and do the whole thing. And that's something we get to do now, Yeah, which is whatever for me. It's kind of, it's kind of a neat full circle kind Mm -hmm. of trip. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so who are the drummers that like have have you dug into the, the album credits? I mean, I know some of these bands are, are set bands and right. there was a drummer for that band, Indeed. but um I you know, there's there's gotta be like J.R. Robinson and Porcaro oh, yeah. and these guys yep. like all over this set list, right? There are. So and and talk about the difference between those tracks or those bands that were like you know, hired gun studio bands versus a band like the cars that, right. were, you know, that had a, you know, a drummer. They didn't hire J.R. Robinson. I assume maybe they I, did. Yeah. I'd have to dive into that a little, a little um, further myself. And I think, I think a lot of times right away in the beginning, tears for fears had the same guy with them for a while. Right. But I have not, I'm, I haven't nerded out on the, uh, on the personnel and who's done it. There's just a difference between, and you can feel it. Like even though some of these tunes are iconic, like we do "Freedom 90" by um, George Michael, which is a great tune. Mm-hmm. That tune has a has a drum machine on it, right? And it's cool groove. It's I dig it. It's high energy, but it it's a different thing, mm-hmm. and you can feel it. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's not as good. Right. <laughs> and and so, I mean that's the other challenge that I thought yeah. about with with a band like that is. You know, a bunch of those songs are a drum machine. Mm-hmm. If it's not a drum machine, it's a highly manipulated drum sound. It with is. the gated reverb and all oh, yeah. that shit. Thank, uh, we can thank our sound man for helping out my acoustic drums to sound right. Right. Which is fantastic. So you're not dealing with a bunch of triggers or no. pads or like... No. 
which is to me sometimes like a, a trigger on a snare. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Like just let's try that. But no, hmm. we're not. But something I was just talking, uh, Smash, Ashley Dennis, uh, Sound Man in Town, who's been with us the whole time. He knows all that. It's, it's like trying to get the right reverb for the for the song. Mm-hmm. And yes, manipulating the uh, the kit just in an analog kind of way. Right. Which, which I'm cool because I have a SPDX pad. Mm-hmm. You know, I have one of those rolling pads and we could do all that, but we don't. And that's something that this band has talked about. All the all the tracks that we use have been built mm-hmm. by the band. Mm-hmm. So they've done they nerded out and done the research to find the right sounds and they this is not my wheelhouse at all. So I'm not gonna my talk neighbor. about it like I'm but what's funny, like take George Michael for example, what I've heard them talk about like some of this technology and these synths were new at the time. So if you know what synth he was using or drum machine, it's just the preset. Right. And they even like Phil Collins. Yeah. It's like, cause it was new. So why would you take a preset and then manipulate it? Mm-hmm. They just used it. Right. So it's like, but what's cool about it is the integrity of the band to replicate the music, but we're doing the best job as musicians to play it. Right. And keep it. No, I mean, I've got my Yamaha kit up there and doing the thing, and I'm trying to use what's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, um, not like real dark symbols or anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've got that snare tuned up and everything's, you know, so it's, you know, it's what it's supposed to be. But we're we're playing it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's great to see, like, the right keyboard solo, to listen to that, the, the guitar solo. Yeah. Because, like, if you don't do it, I think the whole crowd would be like, what? Right. Well, this is not, you know. And that's, I think that's what, <laughs> that's what crowds respond to. Like, yes. they know that guitar solo. They right. know that keyboard solo. If your snare sound isn't exactly like it was on the record. It's going to be weird. Well, I was going to say, like, they'll, they'll, they'll notice something like the solo before yeah. they're, they'll notice something like the sound. Sure, sure. Right. right. And, and we've talked on the podcast before about how, like, you don't, you don't have to go all out with gear or with electronics to approximate a sound or to yes. allude to a sound. I agree. And um, in, in my experience, like, you know, the less, the less I got to worry about a, a, a trigger or an electronic pattern mm-hmm. or, or something, mm-hmm. the more I can focus on playing, the more I can, like, be present with the crowd and with the band and all that shit. Amen. So, you know, it, big fat snare drum solves a lot of problems. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have yes, to go does. all out, you know, no. and maybe even bring a second snare. But I I like that I like that um, you know, at least from the drum perspective, you're not you're not going completely bonkers trying no. to dial in all these sounds. And if, if there was ever a band to do the what are they marketing them as the hybrid kits where you've got the extra electronic pads and I'm not against any of that stuff, but I could have extra pads hanging on my kit all over the place for mm-hmm. this type of music. Yeah. And we're not. We're, we're people playing it, and we're getting it as close as we can. Right. And obviously, we're supplementing some things, because there's certain tunes. You would need four keyboard players if you wanted to play that song. Yeah. And that's cool, but we also need to make a living. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, that's, and it's fun, but it's it's really great to, um, to see... You know, take like Tears for Fears, for example, and look at some of the composition that they did mm-hmm. for some of those songs. And it's it's incredible because, mm-hmm. I mean, they had a lot of time to do it. Right. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's I'm glad to be a part of it now. It's music I grew up with. Um, 
it's really a pop thing. There's there's a, there's some different feels there that I really dig. A tune like Dance Hall Days. Um, I'm not hip to the, who is that's that? a. Uh, my brain is mush. <laughs> I'm so sorry. What did you play outside all weekend? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not sleep. Yeah, right. Um, that's a that's another tune that just has has more of a, a dotted sixteenth kind of feel uh-huh. to it, and um, it's just popping. And like another band, like something about you by what is that level forty? Yeah, I know. I, I play that song. In a, that's in a, a great song. That's like, another one that's slow, right? Super slow. It gets you can push that easy. <laughs> yeah, but it's got to sit, and it's it's you know to to go back and like just the notion of playing a song versus listening to it. Yeah, to me is just opens so many doors. It makes me appreciate what's going on because like you're you know you're asking me about the specific lineup for some of these, which is which is incredible. But like the notion that even at that time when there was a lot of production um, and synthetic music incorporated, a lot of these were bands. Mm-hmm. And so you're still and they were on the road for years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I made this record and, and, and it's a great piece of art. And here we go. It's like we are employed because the only way people are going to hear this is if they purchase it or they come see us. Right. Or, you know, obviously radio play jamming. But like it was a different time. Mm hmm. And um, it's cool to see that. Yeah. And just, and the, the, like, I can't get over it. You go back in YouTube, some of the footage of this, and like, they're so young. Uh-huh. I mean, just start picking them. <laughs> Tom Petty, Tears for Fears. Like, George Michael was, when he was in Wham, he was a teenager. <laughs> I think when he did Faith, he was 25 mm. or something. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what? I mean, I didn't even know what. I don't know what I was doing when I was 25. Just right. trying, I guess, the same thing I'm doing now. Right. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. With what I'm, I'm doing now and what I've done since I've lived in Atlanta since about 2005, is uh, I just appreciate the diversity with some of the musicians that I've gotten to work with. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, like right now, working with Electric Avenue, I'm doing a trio gig every week with uh, Grant Green Jr. and Ike Stubblefield. Right, It's right. an organ trio. And we worked together for about a year exclusively and extensively, rather, in um, 2009. Mm-hmm. So we got to kind of kind of work on it instead of just a few one-offs a couple times a month. We had like a, so a stream of steady gigs, which is great. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you talk about going from 80s pop music to like, I think kind of B3 guitar trio is almost a genre in and of itself. Oh, totally. You know, it's I, and funk. I love it. I can't get enough. Amen. <laughs> I, I, I am just, I'm a student of this. Mm-hmm. I'm always just trying to like find out more and do the best I can with it because it encompasses, I think, such a wide range of like you know swing shuffle funk you know up tempo latin grooves slower bossa novas but there's to me from what i've heard and what i try to try to pull out of this music 
is there's a different pocket there mm-hmm. than like a small piano, you know, upright yeah. bass, which I mean, some people listening might be thinking, of course, it's obvious or something different, but there's a different pulse. There's a different attack with a, with a rhythm section with a, because there's no string, right? You're listening to the bottom end of a Hammond B3, which uh-huh. is a beautiful thing. When I first started, cause I had never done that before much. Um, there's no attack on the note. Yeah. A very minimal attack compared to an upright. Right. Or even like a, you know, fender bass. It's just different. Yeah. You know, that, that place. But yeah. So I think the drummer has to lay it down a little more, a you little know, you're articulating something that was like previously just kind of abstract to me because I I started playing with a, a great B3 player in LA named Ty Bailey. Okay. Um, when I lived there, uh, he's now Katy Perry's keyboardist. And, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but he and I did, uh, like you were saying, a string of like steady gigs for a year yes. with a guitarist named Jacques Lejour who used to live in Atlanta. Okay. Um, but I had never really played with B3 before and I didn't like, I didn't think much of it, um, in terms of like approaching things differently or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just, I just kind of played. And after we played a few gigs together, Ty was like, man, you like, you've got it. You've got the B3 thing down. And I was like, really, what is the B3? <laughs> what, <laughs> right. what is that thing? And, is that? and how yeah. am I getting it down exactly? Yeah. But like playing with Ty, I think it was a combination of, of playing with the B3 and, and, and Ty as a player. It made my play, like it, it made me just want to simplify. Yes. Everything. That's, that's the difference. I think like, even though we were playing a lot of jazz, like my, my jazz brain just kind of turned off mm-hmm. and I focused more on groove, more on pulse and time. And like you said, putting a point on stuff. Yes. Um, and yeah, Ty said like, there isn't, there isn't a whole lot of attack with the B3. You just got to kind of ride the wave and you know, um, so yeah, it's, it's really cool that you art- articulated it that way. And it's, um, and of course every, you know, every player is different. You right. Know, you can't just categorize cause you're playing a B3. It sounds this way, but compared to an upright bass. Yeah, man. Right. It's a different, it's a different place. And it's like what you said about like once, once you stop being cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's kind of a mind frame that the B3 occupies because it's such, it's like, it's such a soulful instrument. It's such a kind of blue collar egalitarian mm-hmm. instrument. Um, cause I mean, you think about it, it's in the church, it's in the living room, it's in the ballpark, it's in the club. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and even though there are many practitioners of it who are, you know, as, as jazz, you know, jazz heavy and as sophisticated as any piano player, there's something about it that just puts you in this kind of like meat and potatoes. Don't fuck around. Man. I love it. Yeah. And I agree. It just, there's, there's a history with that instrument and the people that have brought it to us. And, um, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I just, I love it. And that's, I'm thankful for every opportunity and I don't mean to gush or anything. I really mean that when somebody asks me to play and I get to sit down behind a drum set, I'm very thankful. Yeah. That particular setting for me, uh, I found the most gratification from it's the most challenging mm. because it's in, in granted those, those grant and Ike, it's, there's a combination there. And Ike is, if anybody in Atlanta knows Ike Stubblefield, he is notoriously hard on drummers. Hmm. And that's just one of, that's just the way it is. Uh-huh. But you know, sometimes you got to listen to the message and not the delivery. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things, man. And, and it, it's, I've had plenty of, of opportunities and situations where somebody has expressed something to me on the bandstand 
And you just got to get the point across. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody's in the last waltz ensemble, if I'm playing a song too fast, and like we talked about with the lyrics, um, somebody's not going to lean back and go, oh, would you please... Would you please slow down a little? Right. I can't get the words out. That's not how it comes across. If, if you don't it's mind. Like, yeah. If you, if you can find the time in the middle of this song to slow down or whatever it needs to happen. But that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a beautiful thing. And man, I just, the, Atlanta is just a hub of so much yeah. diversity in music. And I, and I look right now, I look at a lot of the, the community and people that are working and every, it seems like a lot of... A lot of great drummers and musicians. There, there's work mm-hmm. right now. It mm-hmm. is a beautiful moment. Yeah. Which, when I came here, it was like that, and then it, people were pretty freaked out in 09 and 010 because we didn't know what was going to happen. Right. And right. now it's coming back, and it's just I'm so stoked to see what's happening. Yeah. And people like yourself have moved to town, and it just it's always it's ever changing, and it's well it's getting I, stronger. It, yeah, it speaks to Atlanta's scene. Like I've I've told people before. Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that I've gotten as, as busy as I am because with all the great drummers in Atlanta, oh man, I don't feel like Atlanta needs me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, that's but, a, but the scene is big enough. There's enough work. There's enough different types of work. Yes. Like everybody is doing all kinds of shit. Mm-hmm. So even though there is a string of great, great drummers in this town. Incredible. I was able to come to town and, and Atlanta was like, cool, put them to work. Right. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, if, if, if you're, if you want it and you're, and you're prepared and you're trying, man, I was floored when I moved here. Uh, 2005, I'm from Minnesota. Right. Great place. Um, and I came down here and I started to meet some people and go to some different gigs, kind of some different blues gigs and just jazz hangs and just different scenes and I would show up and they knew I was there to check it out but they didn't know who I was uh-huh. you know you're trying to network you're trying to meet people in a new town and it depended on the gig but more often than not they're like well, why don't you come and sit in and I was like what are you talking about because <laughs> where I'm from like you're in a band you know you're doing your thing it's a completely different scene but like the notion of sitting in it was so welcoming is my point. Right. Atlanta I, was like, man, if you're here to try and do this thing, come on in, sit down, and we will show you what we do here. I had the exact same experience. It's incredible. Yeah. Justin <laughs> Chazark, I'll never forget. Oh yeah. Uh, not long after I met him, like we, we you know, we got to know each other and and he was like uh, he was like, I'm I'm really glad you're here, man. We need you. I was like, you're wait, you're you're a drummer. You're glad that I'm here. Right. It's it's not this get away and don't right. steal my gig. <laughs> no, it's it's such a strong community. I agree. Yeah. And um, what brought you from Minnesota? Man, I have an aunt and uncle in town, uh-huh. and I was I studied music in my hometown Mankato, and then I worked for a year, kind of just got a job doing something that my back didn't like. <laughs> And, uh, and then I went back and studied music at Winona State University in southeastern Minnesota. And then during that time, um, my aunt and uncle, Jane and uh, David Frackenpole, David teaches jazz guitar at GSU. I know Dave, yeah. Yeah, beautiful player, mm-hmm. great human being. They're like, they met at Interlochen Music Camp in Michigan. So at that time, in the summer, they would still go up there and work. And so at that time, May of, of 2005, they're like, why don't you come down? You can watch our house for two months and check out Atlanta. And I was like, 
okay. <laughs> you know, I needed to go somewhere. I was thinking maybe Chicago. Uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul's great. Yeah. Um, I didn't know a lot of, even living in Minnesota as long as I did, I didn't know a lot about that scene. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if it was big enough. But my point is, like, I never thought in a thousand years I'd move to Atlanta. Right. I didn't know anything about it. We didn't either. You know, and it's, I didn't know what it looked like. I thought it looked like Chicago. Right. I thought it was going to be like Los Angeles, just like square blocks of concrete for miles. Yeah. And it's nothing but trees. I know. And there's not a straight road in this whole town. Yep. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I came down that summer, and I think for the first 10 days I was in town, we, they took me all over Atlanta every night just to all these places. They took me to Northside Tavern. They took me to these other hangs, you know, jazz hangs kind of come and go in right. the city, different rooms open and close. And they took me all over the place. There was this uh, room called the Five Spot. Right. That was open. And, and that was that was the, the, the scene of Kevin Scott's jam absolutely. session. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I met at the time, I think Coy Bowles had just graduated. I think, I don't think he was out of school, but he was one of David's students. Mm -hmm. And we met and then he's just like, oh, you're a new drummer in town? Because I'm like starting this band and doing this thing. He's like, he drug me all over town after mm -hmm. that. And I stayed. I never left, obviously. But that was how I started. I had I had a place to land. Right. You know, and that was a very secure way to move. Because I moved here with a, a, a laptop, a drum set, and a, a bag of clothes. And, a, <laughs> you know, a Ford Ranger. So that's all I could fit in there. Yeah, a, box, yeah. a box of CDs. And that's all I had. Mm -hmm. And I went back in that August and grabbed whatever else and, and came back and never left. Um, and I just had been very fortunate to have great opportunities. And shortly thereafter that, I got to give a shout out to um, Mike Geyer, who is, uh, people know him now as Puddles the Clown. Right, and right. An incredible entertainer. <laughs> yeah. Incredible vocalist. Mm -hmm. His band, King Sized, which he'd had for a decade, was looking for somebody. And I was right place, right time, like mm -hmm. so many stories go. And he employed me for five years Wow! and um, kind of got me to where I was making enough money to get my own place. And it just spirals from there. Yeah. But, I mean, I could go on, I don't know how much time we have, but I could go on and on about just the, it, at that time, like 2005, six and seven, like some of the, the things that were happening in Atlanta and some of the musicians I got to go see just changed my whole perspective mm -hmm. and places, clubs that were in town, you know, thank goodness Northside Tavern is still here. Mm -hmm. That was one of them that changed me. And I got to see like Sean Costello, guitar player uh -huh. in town at that time. Um, Blind Willies is another spot. Blind Willies. Is, and, you know, I mean, you just, it's like you walk into this place and, and I don't even know half of the history. Right. And it's just like, if you have any kind of soul and a pulse at all yeah. in your body, you know that there's some stuff that has happened. Yeah. And, um, you know, some of these, th these people that grew up in town, uh, Oliver Wood was in a band yeah. at the time. God, King the Wood Johnson. Brothers are just so the Wood Brothers, you can't even, I can't say enough about it. <laughs> before that, he was in this band, King Johnson, who we'd go to see at a club called Fuzzies. That's now it's a title max. It just <laughs> crushes my heart. I mean, yeah. you know, things move on. Right, right. But, you know, great funk band, you know, the best of like funk blues Americana just mm -hmm. wrapped into one and anybody who's heard of Oliver, it's just like that guy's like Rumpel Stillskin man. <laughs> he sings something, it turns into gold. Right. I just true. love it. Yeah man. Um but these things were happening in town and there was so such a strong scene because of the people that would go 
to these to these rooms and play. I, I saw Ike Stubblefield for the first time in Northside Tavern. I saw this drummer in town, a vocalist, Donnie McCormick, hmm. who he he was an incredible drummer, and then and singer. And like at the time, he didn't really play drum set anymore. He had this like chicken coop that was. Like I, it's it's I believe it's true, and he had like this ram skull hanging on the front of it, and a cowbell, and he would kick this thing and play it with sticks and sing, and it was the baddest shit I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. And I mean, oh, man. yeah, it's just some of the just just blew my mind. Yeah, these things were happening, and I'd never been in a city this big, mm-hmm. and so different sections of it, and you just get all this vibe, and then you start to to put together that. You know, James Brown is from Augusta. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, of course, you know who James Brown is, but you don't put it together that there's this regional magic down here. Right. And then you start talking about like Muscle Shoals and Almond Brothers. And even close, like and Little Richard is from Macon. Exactly. <laughs> and you're just like, it just doesn't end. Yeah. And, and you feel it. Mm-hmm. And it's, but it's just, yeah. Like I said, it was really welcoming and... It's a great thing. It just it just keeps going. Yeah, and it's yeah. It feel it feels like the sky's the limit in Atlanta. I mean, that might be an extreme statement, but it feels like there's a lot of energy here. There's investment in music infrastructure. Um, the, the last few years, what yeah. they've done like think of the difference with like 420 Fest right. when it started, and like the buyers and shaky knees. And right, there's these national huge festivals that mm-hmm. are happening in town now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you still need to have the local festivals. And there still are. Right, like, right. I played Inman Park Festival right. two weeks ago. Dogwood and tons Festival. of people came out. Like, Inman Park. I mean, you can't even load in. Right. You're just like, right. it's, it's incredible. Okay, I want to talk to you about this traditional grip thing. Oh, here it comes. Why do you play traditional grip? Because <laughs> I was forced to as a young child. <laughs> no, I... Uh, well, I, I was forced to as well. Like when I joined high school drumline, it's like, okay, it. here we go. But so why do you still play traditional grip is, I guess, my question. No, um, and that, that's exa- it was 94. I was a sophomore in high school and mm-hmm. it was like, and it's, it's funny, a lot of drum set players went to play tenor, you know, tenor drums. And uh, right. you got more surfaces. And I, I looked at that thing. And I'm like, I don't want to walk around with that hanging off the front of me. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to play snare. Right. And uh, I did the whole high school thing. Me too. And, you know, a a senior corps after that for three years, March Snare. Which which corps? St. Peter, Minnesota has the Governors. Oh, cool. Okay. And they are the oldest uh, drum corps on on the face of the universe. But um, (laughs) it's great. Uh, I think they started in 1927. Wow. And at that time, that would have been 2000, 2001, 2002. Okay. March snare with those guys, and most of the drumline were like ex Madison Scouts, and they were all ten years older than me. Right. I had no business being in there whatsoever. <laughs> they took pity on me, and uh, they showed me a lot of really beautiful human beings. Um, but that kind of just reinforced it. And when you start doing that, because I played match before that for a few years, uh-huh. you're just talking high school. Right. It's, I mean, it counts, but it's just different. It was so hard to make that transition mm-hmm. that. I'm just, I'm, I'm not going back. And now when I play and I think about this, cause I don't teach unless somebody is specifically asking me for an audition for a drum line. Uh-huh. I do not teach any of my students traditional grip. Right. I go, if you're going to a percussion 
everything else is matched. Uh So we're going to play matched. And they look at me and they're like, well, look at you. And, you know, they'll try to emulate and all that, which is great. That's, that's, that's fun. But, um, I think honestly playing that long and keeping my elbow, my left elbow just relaxed down at my side. Mm -hmm. Now when I play matched a little, if I ever do, which is super rare and my elbow comes up to Mm -hmm. make that, you know, to make that form, it feels so foreign. Hmm. And I just, you know, my setup has changed over the years. I just did a show yesterday and the production guy was Mike in my kit and he's like, so is your snare in the right place? Cause it's all angled up right, so I can, right. you know, play the, the rim shots and the, the, the things I need. And I'm like, yeah, man, I've never seen that before. <laughs> you know, it's all good. It's yeah. all good. Um, but that's, yeah, I've read, you know, different modern drummer articles and they say something about how many, what the percentage of drummers that plays exclusively like traditional grip and mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it is. It doesn't matter to me. It's, it's the most comfortable and you can play just as effective. I'm, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've had different people, even like band leaders that I've been hired to play. And they're like, man, you know, you can't use that jazz grip. You know, I need to hear that snare drum. Uh-huh. And, and that's fine. Everybody's coming from a different place. It's just not true. Right. I mean, anybody who knows who Vinnie Caliuta is right. and could crush a snare drum <laughs> through the basement. Yeah. Or, I, I mean, there's so many examples. Yeah. And it's just, come on. Right. But uh, right. I have had to, uh, you know, switch up the way I set up my kit a little bit. That mm-hmm. first tom is tilted a little bit, mm-hmm. and I actually have like an extended arm a little, so the second tom comes a little closer. Right. So I'm making that run, yeah. and I get to ride where I need it because I, I still have two toms above the above the kick drum. Right. I just you know I dig it. So uh, I like all those tones and that color. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man. Well, it's interesting what you said about like, I'm not going back. No, I'm not going <laughs> like, back. I put, I put all this work into this grip and I'm not like, uh, so I had kind of the, the opposite experience where I, it was, it was about a year ago. It was when I was on the Equinox Orchestra tour that I left traditional grip behind Okay. for good. Um, and it was, it was kind of the... Um, you know, saying I'm not going back is, is one way to say, I don't want to do all the fucking work it's going to (laughs) take to get comfortable on traditional, on, on match grip. That's right. And I said the same thing about traditional grip because I, like I learned traditional grip in high school. I did the marching band thing, but I kind of, I never, I never did the slow methodical building of, of skill and dexterity, um, that, uh, that you have to do if your trad is going to be as strong as your matched. Oh yeah. So I realized this, like I, I just kind of started playing trad okay. in high school and like figured stuff out and just, you know, got, got through. And then when I started playing jazz mm-hmm. in college, you know, I kept it traditional. Um, and the same thing, I didn't really do any careful methodical work yes. on my trad technique. I okay. just kind of did stuff. Right. And right. some of it I did well and some of it was like, well, that didn't work. <laughs> um, so I, I realized that like my, my traditional grip was like a liability to I gotcha. me. I gotcha. And there was, like you said, there's some things that like feel better with it. It's, oh, yeah. it's, and you know, there's, there's the whole aesthetic thing to it, which I love. Indeed. And my wife loves it too. Like when, you know, when I told her I was ditching traditional grip, she was like, Oh, but it looks cool, man. <laughs> I was like, I know, I know, but I can't. So I, I, I just performed an experiment. Like I had been playing this whole tour with Equinox, uh, trad cause it's a jazz gig. It's like sure. a, you know, big band thing. 
Um, and like I got to, I was halfway through the tour and, you know, I wasn't feeling great at the end of my solos. There were, you know, some ideas that I had that my left hand traditional grip just did oh, not yeah. want to do. And right. if I spent hours and hours teaching my left hand how to do it, it wouldn't be a problem, but I hadn't done it yet. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'm just going to play a show start to finish match grip. All right. And see what happens. Um, and like I, I played the show and I like I wasn't overthinking things. Everybody came up to me after the show and I was like, man, your solo was burning. That was killing. And there you I was go. Like, well, shit, I'm done. Yeah. I mean, that's it. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's everybody's journey is different and, and it has that's it has to work for you. Yeah. Period. And yeah, if yeah. you're not comfortable and I mean, I think until the day I die, the left hand is always the the issue. Right. But I try and I work it, you know, work on it as, as much as I can. And I, and I, I love to shed the hands. Mm -hmm. Like I think my students initially must hate my guts because all I do is throw a, a real feel pad in front of them and say, here we go, man, mm -hmm. we're going to play eight on a hand Yeah. and we're going to try to get the sticks to work for you. You know, that's a beginner. Right. You know, right. Um, but, uh, it's comfortable. And I think, yeah, you can, you can do whatever you need to do. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's the finesse I think is there. And, uh, at this stage of the game and how long I've played, it, it is the most comfortable right. for me. And I'll, I'll barely go up and do a symbol roll, um, match grip. Right. If I can help it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and I guess like you, you said, you know, your, your left hand or your weak hand, whichever right. hand it is, is always going to be a liability. Yeah. And what I realized was I, I was choosing to make it more of a liability. Oh, for sure. You know, and you can't, you know, when your career is rolling, you can't do that. You yeah. Know? I think about it now when I look at other players, honestly, the thing that makes the most sense had I to start it over again mm -hmm. would be, I mean, I'm a right-handed person. But to play match grip right-handed open. Yeah. I mean, I think. Yeah. You know, granted, your ride and everything is above your hi-hat. But doesn't it make sense as a right-handed person to play your backbeat with your right hand? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's never going to... And, and doesn't it make sense just as a human with two arms not to cross them? It's, I, I, it's, <laughs> I look at these students and I try to like correct them. Yeah. And they look at me like I'm a, and it, I'm a crazy person. Right. I have the same thing. That I'm, I'm, they're like, why? And I'm like, I, I don't have time to go into it. It's right. just how it's just, done. Here we I'm go. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's that whole thing because if you're not cognizant of it or thinking about it, and you, you know, you could make, you know, however you're teaching, you know, you make like that form on the single pad and mm -hmm. your hands are far apart. You're making your, your V or your rooftop shape and you reach up to that hi-hat and you reach in towards your chest. Yeah. Cause why would you reach out? Right. If you're, if you're a younger player and then your hands are right on top of each other and your the ship is sinking mm -hmm. as, as, <laughs> as it started, the ship is sinking, but yeah, it's bizarre. And uh, you go back and look at like the hi-hat position. For Look at like Buddy Rich's snare to hi-hat position. I know. I don't, I don't know how, how that guy played at all. I, pff, I, I mean, we'll yeah. stop there. That's a crazy <laughs> example. But but I mean like it's even like trying to play. Granted, you know, he did his thing. He, uh -huh. he, did, he did the big band thing. To play with the hi-hat that low next to the snare to even hit the shoulder of the stick uh -huh. would be... I don't know. I mean, he could do anything. Right. Yeah, it, it makes a difference. And um, But honestly, it's weird. The longer I play, I guess the closer my hi-hat is getting to my snare. Maybe I just don't reach up that far anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Right. 
But, well, you're, you're shrinking. Your arms are getting shorter. I think I am. <laughs> I never hit, hit you know, 5'10 in my whole life, like 5'9, so it's, I'm just getting closer to the earth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, when Erskine was in town doing his clinic, he, he talked about, um, you know, bad habits sure. that, that drummers develop. Like, yeah. no matter what level you're at, you know, like golfers, for no particular reason, just develop a shank in their swing and they have to correct it. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about the shanks in my swing and the various physical shit that has just showed up for no reason. Oh yeah. Little habits I've started doing for no reason. Are, what, what has that been for you? Or there, is there something lately that you're like, you keep doing and every time you're like, why the fuck am I doing that? Yeah, I would say, <laughs> right. I would say my, my journey has, has switched a lot in the last few years with like the sticks that I use. Uh -huh. I mean, I have switched different kinds of, I mean, there's so many drumsticks to choose from and then you start going to signature series stuff and the sky's the limit. Right. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous, but it's incredible. Uh, a few years ago, I kind of went from a 5A to a 5B hmm. and I was playing a lot like uh, kind of Americana, more kind of rock stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought, you know, 5B would be a girthier stick because a lot of, a lot of backbeat stuff. Right. And then I came across a player in Charleston who was using these 85A drumsticks. You're right. They're a halfway between a 5A and a 7A. Okay. They're gorgeous. Yeah. That's what I use for my go-to stick. Huh. And then I'll use a Peter Erskine ride stick. Those oh, are the yeah. two sticks I use. Right. Um, and they, they suit me. But what I'm getting at is like, in my journey, I have like realized that I have overplayed. Uh, I got in this group a while back uh, called the AJ Gent Band. Mm -hmm. And he's an incredible uh, slide guitar player. And um, kind of came from the, the Sacred Steel camp. Right. And we got scooped up and we're doing like opening for Zach Brown Band for like six months, uh -huh. which is incredible because yeah, those yeah. guys are crushing. Yeah. We were sitting in these arenas and amphitheaters going, what on earth are we doing? <laughs> so I was super stoked. And, um, you know, for our set, and it was real funky kind of music that I was, I was just playing so hard because I wanted to, you know, energy is good that, you know, you just got to let the sticks do the work. Mm -hmm. You, you don't want to hurt yourself. You know, you start looking at some of these uh, drummers who've been maybe rockers their whole lives and they're maybe in their 60s now. And I've seen some drummers in their right hand, they're holding the stick between their index and middle finger. There's, a, there's a few of them that are doing that because yeah. you start to develop thumb issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can get thumb issues also playing traditional grip with that backbeat if you're not careful. Right. And so what I've kind of my journey is like set up has, has really been something to be cognizant of. Mm -hmm. you look at like a larger, a larger drum set, smaller drum set, where you sit, yeah. how high I sit. I started to get uh, spinal compression <sighs> where I would get this numb spot in like in my back. Like that, it was high. It was like over my like left wing or something. That's alarming. Ah, uh, you think? <laughs> and so, uh, and so that was like, and I should have done this years ago. I just didn't think about it. I bought a rock and sock, like a nitro seat. Right. Cause I would come off the throne and I had a solid base thrown and then I would come down on it and your spine just, something's got to give. Right. So instead of a little cushion with the throne, it was all me. Mm. And the minute I bought that, it was better. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm real aware of like the angle of my drums and I got to sit uh, behind Chris Fryer's drum set and, and his setup is so tight hmm. and particular and he's got a, he's got a, fairly large drum set, two up, two down, a lot of cymbals for uh -huh. color. But a man, you could just tell it's he's meticulous about where everything is. Right. Heights, everything, which you should be. Yeah. Um 
But that really woke me up. And he looked at me one time and he's like, man, you guys sound great, but you got to let the microphones do the work. (laughs) He saw how hard I was playing. Yeah. Um, And so those were kind of some moments where I really woke up. And and it's true. And you look at a player like, um, or listen to a player, watch a player like David Garibaldi. Mm -hmm. And granted, he's playing that piccolo snare that would cut through any piece of glass on earth. (laughs) But he is really, what I would say, a really effective player. Yeah. And he can get, you know, he's all about the level systems and he can get that pop and those accents. Mm -hmm. But he's not putting his arms above his head. Right. I mean, the economy of stroke and playing... You know, when I see stuff like that, because he's is he he's got to be is he seventy yet? Uh, he's got to be close. Got to be pushing it, you know, right? right there. Yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing. Like, I want to do this until I can't get my drums in the car. Right. <laughs> I mean, I really do. Yeah. And and to to know that you can do that and to let the stick do the work, let the rebound happen, and like Jim Chapin, when I used to go to these, if you ever got a chance to meet him, the great big tall dude talking yeah. about the molar right. stroke, and he would walk around holding that real feel pad, yeah. and just like playing like singles, and he's like, man, it's got to bounce. Yeah, that guy's that's that's the shit. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. Yeah, yeah. And but you got to take that approach to your whole body. But I, that's it. Yeah. And with the feet, where you're sitting, your hips, how tall you are, the whole thing, man. Yeah, yeah. And. I feel like, you know, as I'm getting old, like you're 40, I'm 37. Right on. Um, and uh, I feel like I'm spending more and more time just, I'm not, I'm not learning new licks. I'm not developing new coordination. I'm just trying to figure out how to just fucking feel okay physically. Man, there's a lot <laughs> behind to the that. Kit. Yeah, just figuring out, like you said, positions and techniques and whatever that not only you know causes me to play well in the moment, but that I know is sustainable. That's like it. this isn't going to cause an issue. My you know my no part of my body is in a weird position. Right. It's not moving in any way. It's not supposed to. Um, and I've had the same thing. I'm dealing with back stuff. I'm dealing with like a right hip thing because my uh, my kick foot like puts tension all the way up my leg. Sometimes that's a bad habit that I'm very aware of right sure. now. Okay. Trying to trying to address it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, for kind of the the last couple of years, I got to the point in life when it's like, oh, if you don't address this, it's going to be a big problem in ten years. That's right. You know, and be it back or be it. You know, tendonitis, right. you know, that whole don't even say the word, <laughs> you know, it's that whole thing. But I really do think it can be avoided. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important, man, to like do the, the and there's plenty of articles about the, the physical health and fitness and well-being. But you start to look at these guys. And if I'm saying his name correct, uh, Kenny Aronoff. Yeah, yeah. You know, that guy looks like a wrestler. Right. And even like, look at Steve Gadd. Yeah. Look at what he looks like. And granted, there's a difference. These guys aren't loading their gear. Right. You know, I'm still pushing a big piece of hardware in the back of my pickup. Yeah. But you got to be smart about it. But the the longer I think, drummers specifically, and there's exceptions to everything, but you look at some of these older players, man, they are taking care of themselves. Yeah. And it's it's important. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting to watch. There's other other players that. Their setup is is kind of bizarre. Uh-huh. Maybe their symbols are really high, right? And it's like they've been doing it forever, mm-hmm. and so there's that adaptation. I just think, yeah, like you're saying, if there's if you don't have to reach too far, mm-hmm. then why do it? Yeah, uh, it's just you know, if I, they quit making twenty three inch ride symbols, maybe <laughs> I could get it closer. 
But uh, <laughs> well, the other thing is just like being being aware of your body and being present in your body. Like yeah. I, I talked a lot about yoga with Ganesh. Oh, of course. Um, and I I started doing some yoga in college, but like whether you do yoga or or you know weights or running yeah. or whatever, I just think some kind of physical activity and physical awareness just makes you. Like if if an if an issue arises behind the drums, mm-hmm. you're in touch with it. You're like, oh, what's going on here? Like your your body is talking to you, and you listen. Um, Absolutely. And I like Tom Brady said. Uh, uh, you know, he talks about how playing quarterback isn't. It's not just about throwing the ball. It's about how you eat. It's about how you sleep. It's just like every every single thing you do in your life is is geared towards maximizing that. Oh, um, at that level, absolutely right. But I think we like we need to do the same thing. Cause, I agree. Because like, if you want to play drums until you drop dead, you gotta take care of yourself. You do, <laughs> and, uh, and it's and it's an interesting thing to to just. I I I was a practitioner of yoga for about three years. Mm-hmm. I did that Bikram thing. Yeah, which is that that's like 105 right. degrees in the room. I don't think I ever felt so good. Yeah, when you push through, you know, the the learning of it, mm-hmm. it will it will brutalize you but the hyper awareness of your physical self mm-hmm. because it's the same postures yeah so the, the the practice is the same and so one day you can do it and just be like man i feel great and two days later you try the same thing and you can hardly do it right. you know, sweat is pouring off you yeah but what you're saying is 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 it's the same thing what you're saying that that awareness of your physical self and some people just, it doesn't matter if you're a drummer or not. They just don't listen to their bodies. Right. You know, yeah. it's like you're sick and you just keep showing up to work uh-huh. and now you're going to the hospital mm-hmm. because you have pneumonia, mm-hmm. which, you know, whatever it's, but it's crucial. And I think too, you know, at the level that I'm playing and want to play, um, you know, I'm glad to work. I'm making a living at this the best that I can, mm-hmm. but I'm loading my own gear. Yeah. And, and I went from an Oak custom Yamaha, which is great. But they're made out of oak, and they're heavy, right? And I'm like, that's cool, whatever. And I didn't think you could get a heavier drum set until I bought a recording custom. Yep. And they're heavier. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, here we go. So yeah. it is important. I can't, I can't throw my back out before a gig mm-hmm. and then expect to do this because yeah. there's whatever. I don't have a, sev- a severance package, or, <laughs> or you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, you can't make it today. We'll pay you anyway. Right. And we'll find a sub for you. It'll right. be fine. You know, we really have to be hyper aware. And I think that's great. If my job or, or our careers rather make you eat better, make you you get out more, do that thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only, it's only going to help in the long run with just life in general. And yeah. I guess that comes full circle to like the whole, there's no glass ceiling on this thing and mm-hmm. you can practice and get into stuff. And these younger players now, I don't think they have any idea how much, material and accessibility they have to learn. They, yeah. they might, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, but, uh, you know, you listen to like even Dave Weckl talk about when he was younger, like just slowing down the record to try to get the licks, mm-hmm. you know, we're of a, of a different generation where we saw the, you know, a lot of method books were available, but you know, if you, the software started when I was in college to where you could, I think it was called the amazing slow downer right. or something ludicrous yeah, yeah. where you could take a track and slow it down. Um, but it's just a, it's just a whole different thing. And, and what drummers like Stanton Moore have put out and not only just like great methods, but like what groove alchemy, I think is a book mm-hmm. he put out where like there's, that is a historical lesson mm-hmm. in like 
this iconic genre and, and it's incredible. Yeah. And all you need to do is put the time in mm-hmm. and you can get better at this thing. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's beautiful. And I guess as an instructor, that's what I love to try to get across to my students that you, there's no easy way around this, man. Mm-hmm. You have to put the time in and then, you know, getting back to like younger players, they're like made out of rubber, you know, and I look over and a lot of the, <laughs> the, the boys that I teach girls seem to like sit upright. They I don't do. know what it is. They yep. just, they're like ready to go and they can think and the guys are just like, what? And they're <laughs> fine. And I don't mean to generalize. I, I love, I no, love generalize it. away. It's you totally know? true, man. And they're, really they're, true. they're hunched over their shoulders are closed and I'm like, we have to sit up yeah. and, and I'll, so just trying to instill that awareness and setting up the kit every time to, to accommodate their height and their size, mm-hmm. change out the throne, you know, whatever it needs to be. Um, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's interesting <laughs> how like physical, physical activity of any kind, you know, we were saying it, it puts you in touch with your body yeah. and I'm, I'm just realizing how like I have, I have a couple students. I have a, a, a boy who's like nine, who's heavy into gymnastics, ah. like him and his brother travel all around the country doing these, Whoa. doing these meets and competitions and shit. Um, so he's, he's great. He puts stuff together super fast on the kit. Mm-hmm. And I have a girl who's like 11, who's heavy into soccer. Yep. Um, and they both, they both have like just a great, they sit up straight, <laughs> their coordination yeah. is dialed in. Like, you know, sometimes they struggle with stuff, but like you can tell like the, you know, those car, those, those pathways in their brain have been carved. There's awareness. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, so I, th- you know, you talked about Kenny Aronoff, who is obviously lifting all the weights in the world. Um, or, you know, Ganesh, who is in, into the yoga thing. Absolutely. I, no matter like find your thing. Oh, Find yeah. your physical thing and and do it because it's going to improve your drumming. Well, yeah, and if you don't, you're gonna you're you're gonna feel it at some. Point. <laughs> you're gonna feel it at the worst possible moment. Right. <laughs> no, I hear you. It's yeah. uh, it's great. Cool. So. Well, man, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming over. Pleasure, Zach. Thank you for having me. Will referred to a few people as good human beings, and I think he definitely qualifies as that himself. I had a great time talking with him. Hope you dug that. Hope you all had a good 4th of July. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.